show your appreciation to Austin Turner and to Summer just uh, for leading us again this morning. What a great job. <clears throat> I called um, Austin, Austin Butler in the first service, who is the actor who played Elvis. Uh, he's not, uh, that's not correct. It's Austin Turner. Um, and then Summer, I just, I just want to tell you something about Summer real quickly. Years ago, um, I was doing a wedding here, and I heard this woman singing this incredible song. It, it was rehearsal. I came out and heard her singing this incredible song, and just heard this beautiful voice. And I said, I, so I went up to her, and I said, would you be willing to sing at City Church? And I think nobody had ever asked her to do that before. And she said, yes, I'd be willing to do it. And so she's been with us ever since. And uh, boy, I just think she's got a beautiful voice. I love hearing her sing. One of the things that we did prior to COVID that we kind of got away from uh, through COVID that we want to start again is praying for uh, one Sunday a month. We want to pray for a particular occupation that is represented here at City Church. And we've done that in the past, prayed for, you know, a number of different occupations. We're going to pick up kind of where we left off last time. And this morning, I want to say a word for those that are in the medical profession. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all of those in the body of Christ, universal, but the body of Christ here at City Church who serve in the healthcare profession. We thank you for doctors, nurses, researchers, scientists, hospital administrators, therapists, pharmacists, medical assistants, paramedics, uh, medical technicians, all of these people who have discernment and understanding and knowledge and courage. By your wisdom and by your providence, you have strategically equipped men and women with expertise as a sign of your unfailing mercy for humanity, and thank you for that. Remind them, Father, not to trust in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Give them the boldness that they need to stand up for their patients' rights and to stand for truth in their profession. And we thank you so much for them, Lord. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. In July of 2020, at Charles de Gaulle uh, Airport in Paris, two planes came within 300 feet of crashing into each other. One was a United Airlines flight from Newark, New Jersey, making its approach to land. The other was an easy jet preparing to take off for Malaga, Spain. What kind of technological glitch was responsible for this near aviation disaster, you might ask? Was there a malfunction in the air traffic controller software? Uh, was there a glitch in one of the airplane's software? Well, actually, it was neither. Here's what happened. The United Airlines flight that was incoming was supposed to be assigned to land on runway 09L left. However, the air traffic controller accidentally told him to land on runway 09R, right, which was the same runway that the EasyJet was told to take off from. When the mistake was caught, the United Airlines flight was told to abort the landing and ascend immediately. But by the time the pilot could begin that evasive maneuver, the two planes were only 300 feet apart. 09L? Versus 09R. Turned out the cause of this near disaster was just a slight 
slip of the tongue. If you have a Bible with you, would like for you to find James chapter 3 this morning. James chapter 3, we're in a series on the book of James. It's called Authentic Christianity. And if you will recall, James is painting a picture for us of the heroic beauty of a life that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. When a person responds to the gospel, the New Testament tells us that we're given a new heart, uh, with a new set of motivations, a new way of looking at life, a new set of emotions, a new set of desires. And James is concerned that this invisible new heart uh, become integrated into the visible day-to-day activities of your life. And if you will recall the context, the people to whom James is writing were Jewish Christians who are under enormous stress. They're being persecuted by family, by friends, by the Roman government for following Jesus. And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, really? It makes perfect sense that when writing to people who are under stress, that James would come to that aspect of daily life that we are all prone to use in a destructive way, especially when we're under stress. The tongue. Not a person in this room who somehow, someway doesn't struggle with their tongue. And the possibilities of ways that you can struggle with it are endless. There's the hasty, unthoughtful word, the the proud word, the selfish word, the self-serving exaggeration, the sly suggestion, the manipulative flattery, words of anger, words of slander, harmful gossip, innuendo, words of doubt. There are competitive words, impure words, rebellious words, self-aggrandizing words, words of condemnation, threats, words that inflict guilt, words that induce shame, Thoughtless words, boasting words, self-servingly selective stories, words of criticism, just to name a few. And if by some chance you're not guilty of any of those struggles with your tongue, the theologian Richard Foster offers this. The tongue is our most powerful weapon, he says, of manipulation. A frantic stream of words flows from us because we are in a constant process of adjusting our public image. We fear so deeply what we think other people see in us that we talk in order to straighten out their understanding. If I have done some wrong thing or even some right thing that I think you may misunderstand and discover that you know about it, I will be very tempted to help you understand my, act, my action. Silence is one of the deepest disciplines of the Spirit simply because it puts the stopper on all self-justification. One of the fruits of silence is the freedom to let God be our justifier. We don't need to straighten others out. And who here hasn't been guilty of adjusting their public image? We could go on and on and on about the seemingly endless catalog of possibilities for trouble with our tongue. There are so many minds to step on every single day of your life. And all it takes is a slip of the tongue to bring disaster into your life or someone else's. And as we enter into chapter 3, James tells us that this new heart that you and I have been given should be showing up in the way that we communicate. Which in the bigger picture includes not just spoken words, 
but every form of communication, including words typed onto a social media platform or handwritten in the form of a note, words that are sung. And come to think of it, it could also include, include weaponized silence, couldn't it? A kind of silence that is punitive. There's perhaps nothing more hurtful in all of life than when someone you love goes silent. Because that kind of silence can speak volumes, can't it? Well, lest you think that James is going to start off pointing fingers at people, remember James is a pastor. Good pastors don't start off by pointing their fingers at other people. They always start off by pointing the finger at themselves. And I want you to notice how James begins. Verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers. Now, notice he's talking to uh, believers in Christ. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Yeah, you see, he starts off pointing fingers at, at himself and at those of us who are pastors or teachers. And this includes vocational pastors and teachers as well as lay people who teach Bible studies, for example. Now, if you've been listening to me for any period of time, if you've been coming to City Church for any period of time, it shouldn't come as a surprise to you that saying stupid things from time to time is an occupational hazard for those of us who teach or preach for a living. And there are, uh, there are times when you say something stupid and later, uh, sometimes much later, you can laugh about it. That's not really the kind of thing that James is so concerned about. If you read on a little bit, you'll discover that there were people in this, uh, in this congregation that James is writing to who are actually wanting to be teachers and leaders of their churches out of, get this, they were, it was out of envy and selfish ambition, and I don't really understand that. Who envies a pastor? <laughs> What is there to envy, <clears throat> excuse me, about being a pastor? It's not the pay, it's not the hours, it's certainly not the job security, it's not the sweet benefits. I can understand envying a rock star, perhaps, or a professional athlete, but a pastor, frankly, I don't get that. But among Jewish people in the first century, Bible teachers were uh, kind of rock stars. And so there are these people who wanted to be rock star teachers in this church and in other churches, but they were doing enormous harm uh, rather than good. Remember from chapter 2, just a couple of weeks ago, James was having, to, he was having to speak to some of these people who were teaching that you could have faith in Christ without any life change. And so James has to say to people, uh, these people, when he says, hey, tap the brakes on wanting to be a teacher because words can destroy lives and they can also disturb, destroy eternal destinies. Anytime I talk to someone who wants to go into uh, vocational ministry, especially if they want to be a, a teacher of, of some kind, I always tell them to go to seminary. Now, I realize that, that uh, by the way, I'm going on a rant here. Just let me rant for a minute, and then we'll get back to the topic at hand. But I realize that most of you don't know a lot about seminary, so let me just give you a little explanation. Seminary is graduate school. So, you know, you've got to get a bachelor's degree somewhere before you can go to seminary. And then once you get to seminary, if you finish the program, you get a master's degree. Some schools offer a three-year uh, graduate program in theology. Mine offered a four-year program. And, and in mine, I had to... Uh, study three years of Greek and two years uh, of Hebrew. 
in addition to the theology and the Bible exposition and preaching and all of the rest. And when I graduated, I had a four-year, 120-hour master's degree. And then if one desires, they can go on to get a number of different types of doctorates. I didn't desire, but some people do. And the reason, uh, the thing that I want to explain is that the reason I tell people who want to go into some kind of teaching ministry, uh, the reason I tell them to go to seminary is that they need to understand the Bible well before they get up to teach it. The Bible's a complex book, and the stakes are very high. This is James' point. What you teach can shape a life for good or for bad, and not just for life, but for eternity. And I've seen so many people over the years who've been victims of pastors and teachers who were in some cases well-intentioned, but didn't know the Bible well enough, and in other cases not so well-intentioned, and both led people astray. And I've also seen lay people in a church get on a theological hobby horse and become self-proclaimed experts on whatever their theological hobby horse is. And those theological hobby horses usually have to do with one of three areas. One is end times. Uh, the other is creationism. And the other is uh, an element of what's called soteriology, which is Calvinism or Arminianism. And so those three areas tend to become the theological hobby horses that people get most involved in. And then they want to teach classes on it in their church, and they want to lead Bible studies on it, and they dominate their small groups uh, talking about it. And they dominate, if they're, if they're allowed to, church meetings with it. And, and, and if you're in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them, they dominate conversation on that particular topic that is their hobby horse. Beware of people who think they are experts on these areas, but haven't done the necessary academic work to become experts. Now, please don't mis misunderstand. I'm not saying that if you go to seminary, you can't be wrong on anything. Goodness, I have been wrong on many things over the years. But the value of seminary is that, like all good education, it exposes you to different views on doctrinal issues, and it makes you aware of how complex these issues are. People who have a theological hobby horse are usually guilty of studying one side of an issue and how to defend that position, but they haven't gone through the complexity of the issue, studied the arguments of good and godly, studied people who hold different viewpoints, and then to hold their own viewpoint with humility and to hold it tentatively because the issue is so complex. And after four years of seminary and over 3,000 sermons and over 60,000 hours of studying the Bible for those sermons and for other purposes, there are a few things about the Bible and theology that I'm more convinced about than ever. And there are many things that I'm less convinced about than I was when I began. And if you want to know what I'm more convinced about than ever, look at our doctrinal statement which, by the way, you'll be able to find on our new website coming out on February 23rd. Uh, anything not on that doctrinal statement, I'm not as convinced about. doesn't mean that I don't believe it or don't care about it. It just means that it's not one of the things that I am as convinced about as the ones that are on our doctrinal statement. And you see, James is saying it's fine to want to be a teacher or a pastor, but not without the requisite preparation because you can easily lead people astray with bad doctrine as people were attempting to do in this particular church. 
Okay, so now that James has pointed the finger at himself and at people like me, he moves into the day-to-day lives of the normal, and by that I mean not vocational, uh, Christian life. There are four truths that I want to show you in these verses. I think you're going to be surprised by them, okay? Here's the first one. Look at verse 2. He says this. He says, we all stumble in many ways. Again, that's something that a good pastor does. He doesn't say you're, uh, you're guilty, you stumble. He says we all stumble in many ways. But then he says, anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep uh, their whole body in check. Here's the point, and I think this might surprise you. James is saying, there is no greater evidence of your need for grace than your tongue. Uh, No evidence, no greater evidence of your need for grace than your tongue. There's nothing that argues for how deep and full my need of present grace is, its rescue, its forgiveness, its deliverance, and its power than my communication in all of its forms. Think about it. Would you be quite comfortable with me playing a public recording right now of everything you said last month? Or everything you said last week? or yesterday, or today, on the way to church. (laughs) It's an incredible thing. James says, if you're perfect in your communication, in order for you to be perfect, you'd have to be an absolutely, completely perfect person. Look down at verse 7 for a moment. Verse 7. He says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being." Contain the tongue. You see your need for grace? You see your need for power? It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I hope you'll wrestle with this truth that there's no greater evidence of your need for grace than, than your tongue. If you're a person who doesn't feel like you need Christ, you've never come to the point of admitting that you're a sinner, bringing your sins to the foot of the cross for forgiveness... Maybe you think you're a pretty good person. God accepts you. At the end of your life, God's going to say, tell me why you belong in heaven. And you're going to say, well, look at all the good things I did. Just reflect on your communication. And it'll bring you to your knees. And if you have come to a place that you recognize that you are a sinner and you have believed in Christ through the cross, recognize how much you continue to need God's grace with your communication. Nothing shows our need for saving grace and for ongoing grace more than our tongue. I don't know if you realize this, but the average human being, man or woman, either one, speaks 16,000 words a day. 16,000 words a day. That's 16,000 chances to sin a day. Let's say you're really good at controlling your tongue, and 90% of the time, you say, not ba- you say good things, not bad things. That's still 1,600 mistakes a day. Think about how much devastation that could produce. How many friendships are destroyed a day in America because of words, do you think? How many marriages are destroyed a day because of words? How many fights happen a day because of words? How many lies are spread today because of words? How many reputations a day are destroyed because of words? All it takes 
all it takes. Well, there's a slip of the tongue. A slip of the tongue can destroy marriages, friendships, lives. Here's the test. I dare you to do this, okay? I'm going to ask you to do me, do, do me a favor. I'd like to, if you have a phone that has a camera, I'd like for you to pull it out for just a moment. Phone that has a camera, I'd like for you to pull it out. Go ahead and do that. Yeah, those of you in the balcony, you guys do it too. If you have a phone, pull out uh, with a camera, pull it out. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. And I want, to, want you to take a picture, okay, of a perfect person. No, I'm kidding. I don't want you to do that. I want you to take a picture of this a slide that I'm going to put, put up. And I want you to uh, carry it with you and look at it every morning and every night this week, okay? And here's, here's what it says. It says, don't boast about anything. Don't gossip or repeat bad information about somebody else. Don't complain or grumble. Don't self-justify no matter what. Don't gossip or repeat bad information about somebody else. Don't run somebody down even a little bit. Don't do always affirm other people. And then do not use silence as a weapon. All right? And I'd like for you to look at those every day and every night for a week. And I'm going to tell you something. If those don't bring you to your knees... You don't have a conscience. In fact, if they don't bring you to your knees by this afternoon, you don't have a conscience. Some of you aren't going to make it through the Super Bowl without complaining and grumbling and saying bad things about the officials or the other people on the other team. There is no greater evidence of your need for grace than your tongue. And you'll see that if you keep track of that this week. Here's the second truth. Look at verse 3. James says, uh, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Now, I want you to watch. I want you to watch the overall principle that James is saying in this, okay? When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body but it makes great boasts. Now, do you, do you get the comparison that he's making? A human being is incredibly tiny in comparison to the power of a horse or the power of the winds that drive a ship, but by the use of a bridle or just a little small rudder, here's the bigger principle. The much smaller can control the larger and the much more powerful. The much smaller can control the larger. And I don't know if you see his point or not, but what he's saying is that there is no part of the human body more powerful than the tongue. Does that surprise you? No part of the human body more powerful than the tongue. This little two-ounce slab in your mouth has so much power, it can control the direction of your entire life. That's how much power it has. Now, let me prove that to you. Those of you who who are or who have been married... How much did the words, I do, change your life? Or think about the words, yes or no, when said to a job offer. Or to a boy in the back seat of a car. Or if you're an alcoholic, to the person who offered you your first drink, yes or no. Change your life. How about the words, I promise, or I love you. Words can change 
Man, they're so powerful. They can change the destiny of a life. In fact, I'm going to give you some words right now. Here's some words that changed all of human history. When God spoke these words to Abraham, and by the way, these were the first words that God spoke to Abraham. Abraham was, at the time, a pagan. He was an idol worshiper. And then God speaks these words to him, and they change all of human history. Okay? Long before Abraham ever changed his life or demonstrated his faith. Here's what God said to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and ever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God, see, this is God's promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would bring a Messiah to rescue the world out of Abraham's family. That's the power of words. You have the power to use your tongue to bless, and it can change lives. It can change futures, and it can even change eternal destinies. That's the power of the tongue. But there's a flip side to this. Look at the last line of verse 5. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. And here's this third point. There is no power as potentially destructive as the power of the tongue. There's no power as potentially destructive as the power of your tongue. You know that old saying, right, that sticks and stones may hurt my, my bones, but words will never hurt me. Nothing could be further from the truth. Long after physical bruises have healed, wounds of the heart uh, live on and with enormous power. Just compare the lives of people who've heard blessings from their parents throughout the course of their lives like the words that God spoke to Abraham and those who received curses from their parents. Think about the impact of the words you speak to yourself in your own mind. I can't, I'm dumb, I'm ugly, I'm a failure. Those are powerful, powerful words that bring great destruction. I'll tell you a place that this, is, that this power is clearly seen this power for destruction. Uh, it's in the church. It's in the church. I've seen it happen many, many times where a careless word spoken by someone in the church starts a firestorm that ravages lives, splits churches, does irreparable damage to reputations and to the gospel. Nothing in this church as dangerous as your tongue You've been given the power to bless or to curse and your ability to communicate, to build up or destroy. And it makes a difference. Years ago, I read this book. I don't, I'm sorry I don't remember the name of the book. I apologize, but I'm going to paraphrase for you what uh, the man talked about. It was a, uh, he told a story about a family with teenage kids that had decided that uh, as part of their worship on Sundays, 
that they wouldn't criticize one another, the other people in the family, for the whole day. And as the months went on and they, they kept this commitment, they realized that more and more of their children's friends started coming to their home on Sundays. Now, nobody in the family talked about this. Nobody in the family told everybody about this, about this commitment. But they just noticed that as they kept this commitment, somehow other uh, kids, other friends, other teenagers knew that this home was a good place to be. Unlike perhaps their own homes, where there was more cursing than blessing. There is no power as potentially destructive as the power of the tongue. Well, here's his final point. Look at verse 9. He says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, again, notice he's speaking to Christians. Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Um, James is sort of collecting all of the other points, and he brings them together here. And it is, I don't know about you, but it is profoundly convicting to me. Here's what he's saying. This is his fourth point. Saying there's nothing that reveals the state of your heart like your tongue. Nothing that reveals the state of your heart like your tongue. And I would also add this. That there's nothing that reveals a transformed heart like a tongue. Right? James is arguing that, that your words always reveal the true character and condition of your heart. And he does that, again, here with, a, with an example from, from nature. He's in good company. This is exactly what Christ taught. Jesus said it's out of heart that the mouth speaks. Your problem, my problem with the tongue, our problem with communication as a whole isn't a vocabulary problem. It's not a technique problem. It's a heart problem. And what you have James teaching here, and this is very important to get, is this idea of organic consistency. Whatever's in your heart will rule your words. There's organic consistency between what is in your heart and what comes out of your mouth. And this is very humbling to me, um, perhaps because my heart isn't as pure as I would like it to be. Because salt water doesn't come from a pure water spring. Cursing doesn't come from a heart filled with blessing. And see, here's why it's so hard for, for me, at least, and maybe for you, is that I don't want to believe that. I want to believe that my problem with my tongue exists outside of me, not inside of me. If I'm working around the house on something and something doesn't cooperate and and something goes wrong or my tool doesn't operate the way I want it to. I, that's the problem. That's why I say things I wish I wouldn't say. It's the tool. It's the thing I'm working on. It's not me. See, that's what I want to believe. I want to point this way and I want to point that way. And James says, no, no. 
don't you actually see what's being revealed here, Jeff? Your heart, the true character and condition of your heart is always revealed by the words you speak. You have never spoke, listen, listen. You have never spoken a word that is not ruled by your heart. Word problems are heart problems. They always are. And blessings always come out of a transformed heart. When you bless people, when you encourage them, when you affirm them, even sometimes when you challenge them, that can come out of a that comes out of a transformed heart. That's the beauty that James is calling for here. Now, see, I'm, I'm going to close with this because it, here's, here's what I'm concerned about. Some of you will walk out of here today and you'll say, see, this is, this is why I hate going to church. You always, you always walk out of church feeling worse than you did when you came in. That, that's what some of you are going to say. And if that's what you say, you don't understand the gospel and you really haven't listened closely enough this morning. Because if you listen to a sermon like this one, or if you read the Bible without the cross of Jesus in your hand, metaphorically speaking, you'll be crushed by its standards. The standards of the Bible are too high. You can't be perfect in your speech. You always have to come to the Bible or to a sermon from the Bible, cross in hand, or you'll be crushed by its demands. But when you come, cross in hand. And when you leave a sermon, cross in hand, you carry this paradox with you, you see? Because on the one hand, Jesus was the blessing that God promised Abraham who would save the world. And yet on the other hand, on the cross... The one who was called the word of God became a curse. He became sin. And all of your sins and what they deserve are transferred to him. And all of his perfection was transferred to you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you see, when you come to the Bible with the cross in hand, you say, oh yeah, I'm guilty of that for sure. But look at what Christ has done for me and what God wants to do in me. This is the vision of the heroically beautiful life that he has for me. See, I don't think most people understand that what's in here, that what's in this is a vision for your life, a vision for how beautiful it can be, how heroic it can be. So countercultural that instead of doing what the rest of the culture does, which is just curse people, and so negative and, and, and so angry that instead I can show love on social media. I can show love in the things I can say. I can affirm where other people tear down. That's the beauty of the life that we're called to. And so sure, I'm not perfect in this side of heaven. I never will be. But by God's grace, I'm saved from my sins. And by God's grace, I will grow even in how I use my tongue. So don't you dare walk out of here and say with your tongue, I never want to go to church because you always walk out feeling worse than you did when you came in. If you walk out saying that, you're in sin just like that. You will have already sinned. And I hope whoever has came with you says to you, you're in sin if you said that because you didn't hear and you don't understand the gospel. The gospel says you're forgiven. But let's grow. 
by God's grace and power, let's grow. And let's start to use this two-ounce slab of meat in your mouth. Let's use that for blessing rather than cursing. And no, you're not going to be perfect, but let's grow. And let's do that together because Lord knows I need to grow with my tongue. And my wife knows I need to grow with my tongue too. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, I pray for those that are here today who maybe have never understood their need um, for Christ. And I pray that out of your grace, they would feel a sense of conviction today as they consider their communication. There's not a person here in this room that wouldn't be convicted by that. For those that are here today who have um, come to Christ and understand their need for Christ and that they're sinners, I pray that, I pray that you would encourage them that, yes, they're guilty, but you've forgiven them, but this is the vision you have for their life, that they can become people of blessing. You transformed human history by blessing Abraham. Who might be transformed? How might history be changed by who we bless? And we thank you, uh, Lord Jesus, that you are the Word of God. And yet, you became, you the blessing became a curse for us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.